Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the business mindsets of leaders and brands and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business mind healthy. To continue the conversation, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So, while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Our next guest is a very accomplished writer. His writing career spans three decades. Collective sales of his books total more than 1.7 million copies in Australia alone. He has a background in education. He has written award-winning science textbooks as well as two non-fiction books. And he was ranked second in the New World Wines category of 2011. Uh, He's done lots of different writing, amazing. His latest book is all about family businesses and success stories, how Australia's iconic family brands have stood the test of time. And wow, what a fascinating read this is. So let's find out a bit more. Welcome to the show, Graham Lofts. Thank you. Now, you've gone from science, you've gone to uh, some non-fiction books about wine, and then you've gone, uh, and, and cookbooks as well, did you? No, the cookbook no, no, awards. No, 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 the cookbook, yeah, They're that awards. about yeah, yeah, okay, and then now, so it was from the wine book that you're writing, you then uh, got some interest in writing about family business, is that right? That's absolutely right. Um, I wrote a book called Heart and Soul, which was published in 2010, and that was about 12 wine families that had joined together to form Australia's first families of wine. Mm. Um, So there were 12 families in that book. Um, And while I was writing that, I just became absolutely fascinated with family businesses uh, in general uh, because there were some interesting threads through those 12 family stories you know, about uh, resilience especially, mm. uh, you know, because winemaking basically starts with farming. So these are people dealing with droughts and floods and frosts and all sorts of things that you can't predict. Um, and I found in this uh, latest book, Family Business Success Stories, that it was uh, pretty much the same. Um, I, this, this book is about eight families and it's a range of different businesses. Uh, So we've got in there um, the Brown Family Wine Group, which most people would know as Brown Brothers, Mm. Uh, Buller Dairy Foods, uh, Cooper's Brewery, uh, Dimmick's, the the book people, uh, Furphy, uh, Haig's Chocolates, um, and then the oldest business was 190 years old. So... I really wanted to concentrate on businesses that have stood the test of time, so they're all over 100 years old. Yeah, I've, I've found that incredible, and, it, and it, it got me some perspective, and then as I was reading further, you refer to this perspective that now people are saying, you know, business is moving so fast, fastest than we've ever seen in the history of business and, and change is as rapid as it's ever been. And mm-hmm. and, it's un- and I thought to myself, hang on a minute. No, these 100-year-old business, they've, they've gone through two world wars. They've gone through a depression. They've gone through a recession. They've gone through the GFC. I mean, did, 
Did you find that quite uh, sobering? Very much so. Mm. Um, and some of them have also had amazing family tragedies, like one family had an infant daughter die on the voyage over from England when they when they first migrated. Um, and uh, two of the Brown brothers passed away at a real very... Two of the four Brown brothers uh, passed away at a very young age. Um, and the natural disasters that they've had to cope with as well. So... Every single family in this new book uh, has gone through the depression and the wars, as you said. Uh, the oldest one has gone through two depressions because there was a large depression in the 1890s. Oh, yeah. um, and they're based in Western Australia. This is the Samson Sadlier uh, family group, mm. uh, which is infrastructure and transport. Um, so they've gone through gold rushes and... and you know, the, the disasters that follow when the, when the gold runs out. Um, and it is incredible. And one of the common traits of the families is that they, they've all been able to deal with change. And some of them have had to completely change the way they operate. Um, like one of the classic examples is the Furphy family. Uh, they're very well known for the, their water carts that, was, that were used in World War One. Uh, in fact, there's a word, a word in the Oxford Dictionary now, Furphy, which is actually named after, came from their, their water carts. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. And, and Furphy's was a foundry. Uh, so they made farm, farm equipment, you know, harvesters, things like that, and water carts. Everything was made pretty much of, of cast iron. Um, and of course, the, the whole world has changed now, and they would not possibly survive if that's what they were still doing. So in the 1970s and 80s, they really had to completely change direction. Um, and then there are now two separate Furphy companies with the same heritage. They're based in Shepparton, um, and one is still a foundry, but now they're working with cast aluminium as well as cast iron, and they make outdoor furniture. Uh, for example, they, they were commissioned to make all the outdoor furniture for the Olympic uh, Games in Sydney mm. in, in 2000. Um, and then the other Perfy company makes uh, galvanised equipment, such as really huge tanks used in, uh, in brewing and winemaking um, and uh, other food, food products, basically. Uh, so they've had to change um, and restructure their businesses. Um, yeah, I just think yeah. it's so inspiring. And one um, that, that stood out for me was Hague's during the Depression is where they discovered the fame, which is now the famous Hague's frogs. That's right. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about how they did that? Well, well what happened was during the Depression, um, of course, people were, well, they couldn't really afford to, to employ the people that they had on the books, but they were determined to keep those people employed. And the way they got around the Depression was to cut right down on their expensive products and make simpler products, such as the, the chocolate frog. Um, so they, they made their cheaper lines in bigger numbers. They kept their whole staff. They didn't sack anybody. Um, they just changed the lines that they were selling. And during the Depression, um, treats were great for families, you know, no matter how poor they were. Uh, if they could uh, purchase 
inexpensive treats for their kids, you know, like chocolate, mm. chocolate frogs, uh, that they would do that. So that by by producing the cheaper lines, um, they still made a lot of sales because people could actually afford the simple chocolates. They certainly couldn't afford the more expensive ones. Yeah. And every one of those eight families has managed to find a way to get through the depression, the Great Depression of the 1930s, without sacking staff. So, you know, they would change their working hours, uh, they would change their products. Uh, they just found ways around the Depression so that they, they didn't have to sack people. And, and this is another common thing with family businesses. Uh, their employees are almost always treated as part of the family. Mm. Uh, and, and one in particular, A.H. Beard, uh, who make mattresses, they're based in Sydney, um, I actually happened to be there on their 120th anniversary and all of their staff in Sydney gathered uh, in one place and there were tears and it, it was like this was a, a 100 person family. You know, it was like a family gathering. Yeah, it's a real um, sense of tribe, like sense of belonging to a tribe and I think that if leaders listening to this show now in their business if they maybe shifted their perspective a little bit and looked at their staff to actually you know to actually have that mindset that business mindset of being a tribe and it generates loyalty Mm. as well Um, so as well as as doing that they also have to plan the business um, and, and for the long term and they have to keep the, the business going so they have to think really seriously about uh, succession you know how we are we going to advance from next gener- uh, generation to generation what are we going to do if the kids don't want to work in the business mm. uh, how can we maintain the family company and how, how can we maintain its heritage um, and that's been a priority and, and again, those eight families uh, have all made some very serious decisions about succession and, and the most common aspect of that is saying to the next generation, you don't automatically get a job in the company because you're part of the family, you don't automatically become a director because you're part of the family, you have to earn it like anyone else. And all of those appointments are based on merit. Um, and um, sometimes a couple of them actually insist that their their kids work for another business before they work for the family business. Mm. Um, and and they, they joke, you know, look, we'd rather you make your really bad mistakes with another company, not ours, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, look, and you know what, Graeme, what's the other thing that... that uh opened my eyes after reading it was not only that perspective that, yeah, life is fast now, but it's not any different or it's probably easier than it was, you know, 100 years with the world wars and depressions and recessions from a business perspective. But it also made me realise we're also focused on looking forward and I've spoken to a couple yeah. of futurists today. It's all about, you know, how can we future-proof our business? How can we future looking uh, exactly. forward, right? And we need to look back. And go, okay, this is this is 
proven. They've got a track record of success. Let's yeah. have a look to see how they've how they've done it, and maybe we can actually get some some good tips or techniques from that. Did you did you yeah. find that? Oh, definitely. And and they're all looking forward, um, and and they're all planning forward. And some of them have set up family councils for the purpose of actually doing that. Because when as the family gets older, it also gets larger. Mm. Um, so you have to manage the balance between family and business. Uh, and there is an incredible incentive to keep that business in the family. None of them want to sell. Um, one of them, well, one of the families in the earlier book I did said, look, after getting lots of offers to buy the company, uh, he said, well, you can't buy what we have. You know, you can't buy family values. You can't buy the heritage. Um, so it was fascinating. One of the surprises I did find when mm-hmm. I started writing the book, it was meant to just be a biographical, you know, the stories about the families. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't come from a business background, but as the book went on, as I progressed through interviewing the families, it's become more of a business book. And really, um, the people in business who've reviewed it so far have you know, said, you know, there are so many lessons to learn from this. Um and uh, you've mentioned some of them already. Um, and, and the common traits, if you look at the common traits, all of the successful families are part of their own community uh, and they all give back to the community and in doing that, they maintain the loyalty of their community, whether it's the whole country or whether it's just the, the shire or, or city council area that they live in. Um, amongst the eight families, I think there are about five mayors. Uh, a lot of them have represented themselves in council, in one case, in parliament. Um, and, uh, you know, they're on the water board. They're on all sorts of committees within the, the town. Yeah, look, it is, uh, it I, could, is I could go on forever. but <laughs> I know, and I, I wish we had the time. But you know what? If you did, Graeme, it wouldn't get people to read the book, and I think that's what they need to do. Family business success stories have Australia's iconic family brands have stood the test of time. The other thing too, Graeme, that I really liked about it uh, as a parochial Australian, really proud to see a focus on Australia. A lot of business books are always, we fly off overseas for, for case studies and benchmarking uh, and ideas and I think there's so many lessons and I agree with you, there's so many lessons for business in this mm. book. It is inspiring, but it's also stranger than fiction, which makes it entertaining yeah. as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Graham, congratulations on the book. Thank really you. enjoyed it. And um, I look forward to whichever path you go down next. Have you got an idea for another book? Uh, well, I, I'm trying to retire. I've been trying to retire <laughs> for about 10 years. Um, but, look, when you do a book like this, you do get inspired. Mm. Um, and, and, yes, well, I could write another book about family family businesses, you know, new family businesses starting up, which we, which, which would be a whole other story because even though you might think it was hard for those older families, to start a business now, to start a small business now is much more difficult in that there are so many rules and regulations that you have to satisfy. Yeah. Uh, just so much red tape. Yes. And, and, and it's difficult to start the business and then, of course, you have this other level where it's difficult to maintain it and keep it 
keep it going. Yeah, well, I think a good place to start is reading this family business uh, book. Graham Lofts, thank you again for your uh, for your valuable time. Really enjoyed it, as uh, you know. And we like here on this show to take a look into the minds and brands of successful leaders and probe into how they think, feel. Uh, learn, manage their, their teams and manage themselves. It's a great start. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. Our next guest is a Melbourne-based accredited business law specialist. He's also a mediator and managing principal of Sharrock Pittman Legal, a boutique commercial law practice. And he, the firm has celebrated 50 years uh, service to the community and in 2018 was awarded the Boutique Law Firm of the Year and David was also a finalist in the 2019 Law Institute of Victoria Award for Suburban Lawyer of the Year. He's also co-founder, or sorry, founder and convener of the School of Hard Knocks for Stressed Business People and the Reluctant Entrepreneurs, a quarterly business club. I need to find out more about this. I'd like to welcome to the program David Sharrock. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you too, Jackie, and uh, to your, all your listeners as well today. Thank you. And also your new book, I have to mention, Fighting for Enterprise Success Through the Eye of the Tiger. Now, we'll have a talk yes. about that in a minute, but let's just start yes. start with you, David. You've, uh, you've, you're a business law specialist, uh, but you've, you've sort of encroached into the field of entrepreneurship. How did that happen? I guess uh, over the years I've just come to the realisation that you can be same old. Uh, any any uh, lawyer worth their salt can run a law firm in a traditional way and uh, do the same old things that lawyers do. But I got the sense, um, oh, well, always I guess, but particularly over the last 10 years, that you needed to stand up and be different to make a difference. Otherwise, same old wouldn't cut it. You might survive in your business, in my case, in running a law firm, but uh, you wouldn't thrive, and particularly so in tough economic times, Jackie. Uh, that's the cruncher. So a little bit of um, entrepreneurial spirit and doing things different to make a difference is really what I'm all about. Yeah, well, I think you uh, you demonstrate that in your new book, Fighting for Enterprise Success. Uh, and it's interesting, David, isn't it? Because 60% of startups fail within the first three years. Now, that number is so horrific, and I don't understand why people, media, uh, business people don't talk about that more. It's all sort of rainbows and unicorns. Be an entrepreneur, start your own business, be your own boss, and that, which is great. I don't want to be pessimistic about this. Mm. I think that's really optimistic, but there's also this huge reality of those numbers are startling. So why so, do you think so many get it wrong? Oh, I think, I think basically people uh, get this, Great idea, uh, and off they go running with it. And commonly, it's a it's a crash or burn mentality. They put everything on the line, give it their best shot, not sort of really knowing what to do next or next or next in terms of planning, but more by the seat of their pants. Mm. That's extremely common in startup businesses, but frankly, also in very well established businesses. And that was my motivation, really, in writing the book, that I wanted to try to redress 
that and pull people back to the business fundamentals rather than, as I call it, running by the seat of the pants and in particular looking at the small to medium enterprises in Australia, which is actually 96% of uh, the business world in Australia. And that's, uh, you know, that's nothing to do with the top end of town. That's only the 4%. Mm. So we're looking at 96%. And when you put the startups in there and they crash and burn, by crikey, it does a lot of harm, a lot of damage to families and people as they uh, commonly fail. And we want to try and avoid that. Yeah, look, it's such a, it's such a great message. I said, you know, 60% of startups fail in the first three years. 96% of businesses are run by the small business community. Yes. And as I yes. said earlier, those figures are startling. So it's great that you're out there being an ambassador for the for the small business person. Now let's get back to basic business yes. fundamentals. I really like that concept. Uh, can yes. you just take us through what are some of the basic fundamentals that small business startups, entrepreneurs are forgetting about? Yes, um, and it's critically important. And each, uh, each business fundamental uh, complements the other. It's like a massive jigsaw puzzle and all the pieces are all everywhere at the start of a business, maybe in the middle of the business, which has been run in a traditional sense, and then it might have lost its way or gone a bit stale and stagnant or whatever. And so the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle all need to be put together one piece at a time over time. Uh, There's no rush here. Rome wasn't built in a day. Um, Though uh, we're particularly concerned about very tough economic times at the moment, and so that's a great motivator. How on earth do you get your business to thrive, not just survive, um, in very tough economic times? So it's important one step at a time, each business fundamental at a time. First, I think it's really important for any leader of an enterprise that's in the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors in Australia for any leader to look at their own personal motivation for being in business, to look, um, to have a, a good self-appraisal, uh, looking at body, mind, well-being, relationships, these sorts of things, and then to develop resilience. Because one thing's for sure, Jackie, in running any enterprise, you're going to hit a brick wall and meet problems, challenges galore. That's just part and parcel of the deal. What you've got to do then is learn how to be resilient and bounce back, uh, not giving up, and uh, on it goes. But also uh, a business system is important, sort of like a McDonald's, if you like, Mm. uh, just running in a very systematised way, not by the seat of the pen. Uh, with some modelling, some strategy, some good, sensible planning. Most people with planning go ho-hum. It's not worth it. I did it for my bank manager. Why do I have to keep doing it uh, twice a year is what I would say. Here's a good uh, planning strategy. Well, you do because you've got to manoeuvre around the potholes in the road and see around the next bend. Uh, That's very important. Vision, values, principles, purpose. Workplace culture is of profound importance these days. Uh, team building, uh, building leaders, getting customer centric at each customer touch point, being entrepreneurial. 
creative and innovator, looking at new business opportunities, getting out there, shaking the tree and seeing what might fall out. These are all really important things to, to grapple with, but commonly there's a murkiness there. People don't know what to do, where to go to tackle and get these fundamentals right so that the foundation is very strong and can withstand, the business can withstand the tough economic times which we sadly find ourselves uh, still these days, uh, long after the GFC. It seems like a different planet we're on, to tell you the truth, Mm. from the 80s and 90s, but there you go. Yeah, so what, David, what tip would you give someone listening now that is a small business, a start-up, entrepreneur, on pricing and finance, for instance? Oh, well, that's, that's a really important one and a very important financial. Look, being in tough economic times, I don't think it's a good time to be overly adventurous or taking high risk. By all means, in business, take a calculated risk. That's what you have to do every day, mm-hmm. of course. And you can't sit on your thumbs and you can't quiver and quake. Um, you've got to take reasonable calculated risk. And without being a doomsdayer at all, I'm an optimist, but with, uh, you've still got to measure uh, what might be a worst-case scenario if I take this next step, uh, financially speaking, if I commit myself to the bank or, or commit to a big purchase or a, an office uh, relocation and fit-out or whatever it might be, um, that's the question to ask. Keep in the back of your mind, worst case scenario, if it doesn't turn out right, am I prepared for the consequences? And that's not to say you're not entrepreneurial. Mm. Uh, quite the opposite. It's a sensible thing to do. With pricing, well, one of, one of the things I say is the last thing you should do with your pricing is discount. Uh, that's almost like a dirty word in business. It's a last resort uh, where you discount your price. You set your price. No matter what industry or type of business, you set your price fair and reasonable all round to customers and to the business itself. That's the golden rule. And, um, and, and that will cause you to reflect long and hard on what does in fact comprise a reasonable, fair and reasonable pricing. Um, and so it's quite a different approach rather than I'm going to gouge my customers and get what I can out of them. Yeah, that's that good, just, good advice. Yeah, it just will not wash these days, Jackie. Mm. That sort of, that, that's gone and we're now in a highly customer-centric environment. Every single thing we do in business revolves around the customers and we must work hard for them. And I would add that... As a business leader, the paradigm for leading an enterprise in Australia is one of servanthood. It does not cut it either for your customers or for your team or for your other stakeholders to um, to um, uh, go for broke and uh, go all out for your own self-interest needs and concerns and making more and more dollars. That just simply does not cut it today. There's better ways of doing business in a paradigm which moves away from power and control and authority and, you know, profiteering uh, into a servant, uh, servant approach to leadership and serving with whole heart and soul is what I would 
say is profoundly important. Yeah. Now, David, uh, just uh, we're running a little bit out of time, but I just sure. very quickly want to touch on you founded the School of Hard Knocks for Stressed <laughs> Business People. Tell yes. us very quickly what that's all about. Oh, uh, that's named in honour of me, a reluctant entrepreneur, oh, okay. <laughs> a stressed business person. We meet uh, quarterly in the city of Monash here in Melbourne, open to the uh, business community far and wide. They don't uh, have to be our customers. Uh, and we have... Um, uh, some talks from guest speakers uh, every meeting. Uh, we do a little TED-like talk. We do a business book review, a legal spotlight being a law firm, um, auspicing the, uh, the club. We do a legal spotlight to help business people, and uh, on it goes. And is it open for anyone to attend? Yes, 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 it is. It's so not just our customers if, at all. If anyone's anyway, interested, where could they find out more information? Um, probably the best thing is on our website to tell you the truth, uh, au, and that's got all the detail of the business club on it, open to anyone, and, uh, yeah, uh, okay, people would great. be very welcome. David Sherrock, thank you so much for your precious time today, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Our next guest has a job title that many aspire to. He is a distiller. But before he was a distiller, he's ex-military, ex-financial services. He's done lots of different things. We're going to find out a lot more about this whiskey distillery that our next guest has started with his wife. I'd like to welcome to the show Stuart McIntosh. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks very much. Uh, that is a, a title I'm sure most aspire to, being called distiller. Well, Naomi calls us co-founders, co-owners and co-distillers. Oh. So I think that even sounds better. <laughs> I like that. Now, Naomi's your wife and uh, you and Naomi have started this business into distillery. How long ago did you start it? Uh, so uh, the project's now eight years old. Right. Um, we've actually been at market now for 22 weeks. So uh, it's a lot, they're long old projects, whiskey distilleries. Yeah, now I, I just want to touch on that for a minute because I love the concept of planning. I find a lot of small business owners and entrepreneurs sort of get to market a bit too quickly. You certainly haven't done that. What was your process? <laughs> uh, well, the romance we can talk about in a minute, but the, yeah. the business planning um, it really was a, a year long. So from us deciding to go commercial with the distillery, mm to spending the first dollar was really a year. And that was um, a lot of planning around. And it wasn't just saying, let's do a whiskey distillery. And it was about how we created a sort of a, a viable and sustainable distillery. Because mm. it's obviously, we have a wash with whiskeys of, of different varieties and qualities. And we, you know, we really needed to nail what we were trying to do this for. So a lot of business planning... Um, it really took us after that year. Then, of course, we started, you know, spending the money. But it was mm. sorry. Go on. No, I was just going to say. So, how did you manage the project with no cash flow for nearly eight years? <laughs> on a knife edge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, we we um, we had two business. So we had another business, as you're aware, financial services, um, and it was what's called a related entity. So we were able to run. Uh, it and it produced the funds, so it had a cash flow positive, and, and the distillery obviously had a big cash flow negative. So um, that was the cash flow side. And from a, a capital point of view, we um, we had our old house and we had 
an old office, and really between the sale of those two, we're able to fund the majority of the capital here. So how confident were you? Because that sounds risky. I mean, how much of that risk was calculated? Oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot. I mean, we... um, I mean, you mentioned some of our backgrounds. Naomi's obviously got a science and IT background. Um, we both ran our financial services company together. Mm. Um, you know, and so a lot of our time was spent planning and justifying to each other what the risks were and and how we'd mitigate those risks. Mm. But we don't. And, and part of it is creating whiskey that's unique in the category. It's easy just to say I'm craft and I'm small. We're not. We're quite a large distillery. But I think the risk mitigation is, and we have this ongoing joke, if it all falls apart, we have a lot of whiskey to swim in because we, we've made sure that we don't have external investors or we don't have debt, we don't have barrel plans or you know shareholders. Mm. So if it does turn pear-shaped, it's, it's planned to be a separate entity. Oh, okay, and that was from... Your background, so those transferable skills. Oh, absolutely, have yeah. Helped. So, yeah. Well, I mean, we—I guess over our life, because Naomi and I have been together for thirty years now, um, and we we have this, I guess, unique skill set. How we look at it. I mean, Naomi's science, and it was—it wasn't all obviously brewing and distilling. Um, a lot of the units that she studied many years ago are transferable. Um, her IT side of it, um, you know, is amazing. So she. Is able to, she's able to build the whole zero point of sales sort of component through to websites and social media. Um, the military, people say, well, how does that correspond? Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly transferable, both in terms of the communication but the planning aspect and, and getting things right at the first hurdle. So, yeah, we've, we have a few transferable skills which have been beneficial. Yeah, enormously beneficial. I mean, this is such a, a nice, refreshing, excuse the pun, I should say pun intended, refreshing uh, talking about a small business doing the planning, not just going, yeah, let's just do it, it sounds like fun, rainbows and unicorns, but actually doing the, the risk, the, the mitigating the risk, planning, uh, tra- using those skills and acknowledging that you've got those skills that you can actually transfer them. So that's really exciting. Now, the other thing that's exciting that I really liked about your business was the story. And every great business always has a great story. Now, your business is called Chief's Son, Distillery, and uh, and there is a link to the Macintosh name. Tell us a little bit about how you got to that point. And um, yeah, we had a branding guy, and he was amazing. And he said, make sure everything in your branding and marketing is the truth. And so we just have this amazing story that, that that's real, every component of it. So um, where we start by saying, in 2011, I bought three bottles of whiskey, and the very short or distilled version is they're all the same and on each of the boxes was an entry you could go into the 25 word or less competition why you should go to Scotland. So I bought the whiskey but Dad won the trip and he wrote some beautiful 25 words that won him the trip. So that's you know, we didn't come up with a brilliant idea or a, or a you know, let's try and change our life and do something exciting. It was just this coincidence that happened. So then Dad and I took off overseas. I now I left for the Army when I was 18. So to me, 
the win was going overseas with Dad as an adult. Um, and that's true. That was a great bonding trip. But about halfway through, I really started thinking about what was happening. And it's, you know, Dad's 25 words are intergenerational. So he wrote, my grandparents passed the love of whiskey through my parents to me. I want to make sure my children pass them to their children. So I thought about that. I thought about the access we had, and it kind of seeded the concept. Mm. Um, so when we got back, Naomi and I set up the Testbed Distillery, which was amazing. It made very, very good whiskey. And then, and then, then we started launching into the business case. So once we already knew the science and the, the art of distilling, um, but even on the way, um, talking about the truths and the, and the name, um, so Macintosh, so I'm Stuart Macintosh. Macintosh in Scottish Gaelic is Big Untaishik. And we, we know that 900 years ago, so in the early 1100s in Scotland, our family were awarded that name as a battle honour. And Macintosh means son of the chief. So when we came to name the distillery, we just simply flipped it around. So it's been a, an amazing unravelling of what was initially a seed. And here we are sitting in you know, such a large commercial distillery. Which, uh, was there any particular distillery in Scotland that really inspired you? All of them. All? Um, okay. Yeah, no, all of them because you know, we had really unlimited access to the things that you couldn't normally see. Mm. So we were taken around as sort of a royalty and it was, you know, so we got to see yeast propagation and coopering, barrel coopering and malting houses and the things that, so it was, it was the realisation that it's, there was a doable art. It was so, yeah. All of them. I mean, yeah, I mean, Strathila Distillery was was the prize. That was the one that we went to visit initially. And so where, they always have a little part of my heart there. Well, but, sorry, can, can can you say that word again? Yes, Strathila. Where's that in Scotland? In the Highlands, I'm assuming. No, no, it's in the Space Side, so it's oh, the northeastern right. side of Scotland. Okay. Um, but that's the heart of the Shivers Regal Inventory. So if you if you ever drink Shivers Regal, it's got some of the Strathila whiskey in it. So, but so no, it was it was the whole journey and that realization that you know it's whilst it's very difficult to make, it's we start if you start to unravel the science, it kind of makes a bit of sense. Now, uh, as a family business, how do you manage working together? <laughs> um, yes, so Naomi's famous comments throughout the time has been I'll never be an army wife and that, that obviously happened mm. and I'll never work with him <laughs> so that's a good question um, we we think very differently which is just brilliant so she's very much got a science and sort of um, research brain on her mm. and I've got the execution side so we we never cross paths at work um, we do different aspects to the planning um, to the execution of it and essentially we've even divided the company now where I do production and she does the marketing and sales. So that's how we've always, for the last, I don't know now, 16, 17 years, we've worked together on that principle. Yeah, so the, the boundaries are very clear. Yeah, that's all part of the business plan. Okay. And it, it, it sounds weird, but mm. even when we had, so if you go back to 2011, we had a two-and-a-half-year-old girl mm. and twin boys who'd just been born. Um, so pretty much straight after that, we started developing what we call three businesses. So we had the finance business, the distillery business, and the family business. And they all, we've all, all got our own roles in, in how that functions. That sounds, I guess that sounds a bit army. But, but it, it's about separating out the key functions that need to be done and affording time and resources to each of them. 
Okay, now uh, Chief Sun is available now in Australia. Now I remember, re- refresh my memory, Stuart. Is it you've committed to thirty percent of your productions to stay in Australia? Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what our long term intention intention mm-hmm. is. Um, so we have overseas contracts now, um, which take up a lot of the stock. But we're trying to, you know, really 30% of the minimum. But if we can keep 50% here, um, that that would be ideal. And as interest grows, it's kind of bending that way anyway. That we'll, we'll keep a lar- much larger percentage in Australia. Yeah, I think I think that's a really admirable target. So you're still wanting to expand internationally, but also recognising the uh, the importance of of keeping some at home, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, from a, it's a risk mitigation strategy as well. So mm-hmm. if the big contracts overseas fall over for whatever reason, we need to still maintain a, a base here, a base of support. Um, and we have you know, incredibly incredibly good support from our local area and the peninsula yeah. um, and, and growing through the capital cities as well. But, it's, but the other reality is in this craft land of producing high-end, you know, really good quality spirit, you have to export. If you don't export, our view is you'll die anyway. So you know, you've got to have a sustainable business case if you're going to make a high-end whisky. Yeah, well, uh, on this show, I've been talking to today to people from all around the Australia and overseas, and I, I rarely um, get local businesses on the show because... Uh, I always look for someone that's doing something a little bit different and you're certainly doing something different and I, I congratulate you. I think it's wonderful. Chief Sun Distillery. And those, because uh, we broadcast here from Mornington in the studio and you're a stone's throw away in Somerville. Um, local distillery, absolutely. Yeah, so chiefsun.com.au if you're wanting to find out more and you've got Cellador, which is yep, um, yep. Friday and Sunday, 10am till 4 and Wednesday to Thursday by appointment only. So I've been to the cellar door. It's fabulous. The whiskey is first-rate, single malt whiskey on the Mornington Peninsula, and uh, and you and you base it on the way that the um, that, that the Scottish make their whiskey, Stuart. Is that right? Yeah, I mean we're double distilled, mm. so that's uh, that's the Scottish style as opposed to Irish, which is triple. Um, absolutely. So we're single malt whiskey only, mm-hmm. so meaning single distillery and malted barley only. Yep. Um, but yes, we base ourselves on the distillation science, but the type of whiskey we create is really unique. Not So we respect the category, but it is definitely different and outside of the category. So we have three, we make three different base spirits, which, oh boy, you've had them, <laughs> they're all amazing, mm-hmm. um, at two different strengths, and, and we're ranging into other specialty stuff too, like beer finishings and just just pushing the boundary a little bit on, on what single whiskey can be. Yeah, I love I love the innovation. I love the planning. That that's what impresses me the most, I think. But the thing is, I suppose, and the story. It's got a great story behind it. Uh, and so those that want to find out a bit more, they can find you on Instagram and Facebook and chiefsun.com.au. Stuart McIntosh, say hi to Naomi. Thanks again for your Will valuable do. time. Thanks, Jackie. See Appreciate you soon. It. Bye-bye. Thanks. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you've missed a lot, but the podcast will be available on my social media, Jackie Mitchell. 
Thank you to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business mindset.